When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you're interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. For March, we are reading Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen. And for April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, Julie Carrick-Dalton returns to talk about The Last Beekeeper. Julie is the Boston-based author of The Last Beekeeper and Waiting for the Night Song which was a CNN, USA Today, Newsweek, and Parade Most Anticipated Book, and an Amazon editor's pick for Best Book of the Month. An alum of Breadloaf, Tin House, and Grub Street's Novel Incubator, Julie holds a master's in creative writing and literature and is a frequent speaker on the topic of fiction in the age of climate crisis. She is mom to four kids and two dogs. When she isn't reading or writing, you can probably find her skiing, kayaking, growing food, or chasing bees. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. Welcome back, Julie. How are you? I'm great. It's so nice to talk with you again. I'm so glad you're here again as well. And I just can't even tell you how much I loved The Last Beekeeper. Oh, thank you. I sat down to read it because it sounded so intriguing. We talked about it last time when you came on the show. And I literally could not put it down till I was done. It is such a page turner. I love hearing that. (laughs) Well, I can't wait for everybody else to get to read it. And I'm going to be recommending it like crazy. I I can't wait to start talking about it with people too. These weeks before it comes out, it's, you know, the um, the buildup for me is I just can't wait to, to talk about it. So I'm excited to be here with you and you've actually read it. Absolutely. Well, before we dive into my questions, why don't you give me a quick synopsis of The Last Beekeeper for those that won't have read it yet? 
Sure. So The Last Beekeeper is a near future novel. Um, It's not set in a, a named date. It's just kind of floating in the near future. And it's about a beekeeper and his daughter, Sasha, as the world's pollinator population collapses. And this um, loss for pollinators, because you know, they, they pollinate about a third of the food we eat, it sends the world into a food security crisis, agricultural crisis, which leads to economic instability and political instability. So there's a lot going on in the background, but I really zoom in on the character Sasha and how it impacts her. And we go back and forth in time between Sasha when she's an 11-year-old girl and when she's 22. And when she's an 11, it's before the collapse, when it, it's, it's looming in front of her and her father, who's the last beekeeper in the United States. He, you know, he very early on in the book, this isn't a, a spoiler, he ends up in prison for reasons that are a secret that I won't share. And Sasha has to um, find her way in the world without him because she doesn't have a mother. And so we, as a young girl, she's losing her father. And as an adult, she's trying to uncover the secrets that her father didn't share with her. And she's a kind of kid who loved nature. She loved her father's bees and just being out in the woods and in her mother's garden. And as an adult, she's trying to rediscover that for herself and wonder, you know, what if the bees aren't gone? Like, what would the world look like if we could, if we could find them again or save them? And so, you know, the reader kind of wonders, is, is sausage delusional? Or are there bees? Or is there a possibility of bees? And um, I try to leave some questions unanswered in the story because I think there's a lot of answers we don't have about the future, and I didn't want to pretend that I had them. So what I think I liked so much about it is I love climate fiction, which this definitely falls square within, but there's this mystery the whole time that you're trying to unravel exactly what happened and what Sasha remembers and what is different than what she remembers and just exactly where it's going. And I loved that. I think that's what made it such a page turner. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, you were saying the page turner, it was kind of a page turner for me too, as I was writing it, because there are a lot of elements of the story I didn't know until they were about to come out of my fingertips. And especially with the characters that revealed themselves to be different than I thought they were. And that was a lot of fun for me. I bet. Well, as I was reading it again this morning, reviewing for our conversation, I was wondering how much time you had to spend world building, because you make a good point when you're talking about the synopsis. It is in the future. You don't set an exact date. It's clear a lot has happened, and you define that, but you don't spend a ton of time fleshing it out because you are focused more on Sasha and her story. How did you strike that balance? (laughs) That was really hard because the first version of this story, I went way too far in the world building. I was talking about currency in this this world and a lot more about them. So Sasha works in a greenhouse as an adult, and I went way into so much detail about how the greenhouse system worked and about the water filtration system in the greenhouse and so much detail. When I sent in the first draft to my editor, she was just like, whoa, you need to dial <laughs> this back. <laughs> she, I don't need to know what the currency situation is in the United States. I don't. That doesn't matter. And I was all in like the healthcare system. And uh, I, I just really built all this world. But what I was doing was building it for myself. I needed to know all those details that my characters were navigating. So I actually, you know, I, I rewrote the entire second timeline. I mean, I didn't get to revise it. I rewrote the entire second, the adult timeline because of this and pulled back on all the world building details. And I had a, um, a review in Publishers Weekly that came out. And at the end of the review, just two words, it said superb world building. And that just made me so happy. My editor saw that and messaged it to me. And she's like, all oh, that work paid off. And sometimes less is more because 
you really did not need to know all the details about the world that I created, but I guess I needed to know them. Well, I'm sure you definitely did, just to be able to flesh out your story. But I thought you really struck that balance exactly perfectly, as apparently Publishers Weekly thought you did as well. Because you know you're in the future, you, you highlight certain things, you talk about them, but you don't spend forever with the currency, which would have been interesting to me, but it's, it's not really necessary for the story. Yeah. And I, and I also think that it's okay to just state a fact that something is like the bees died. I can just say that and then move on. I don't need to go into all the details about every single thing that led up to it and every single thing that had happened after. I can just float that as an established fact in this story. The bees died. And then I can move on where I had initially spent too much time trying to convince you as a reader that all this stuff made sense when I should trust the reader. And that's what I had to learn. That was a balance I had to strike when I was working on this is just trust the reader that they'll go with me. That's so interesting because I hadn't even thought about that aspect of it, making sure that we feel comfortable that the bees could have died. But I think at this point, most people feel like that is a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Unfortunately. Yes. Sadly. Well, how did you come up with the idea for this one? I know we talked a little bit about it last time, but it's been a while, so I don't totally remember. And how did you settle on bees? Well, um, so I have been a beekeeper and I don't have bees right now, but I'm actually restocking my hives in April, which I'm very excited about. So what happened is I was keeping bees in my yard and they were doing great. They were thriving. I had, you know, this, this little cells in the honeycomb were filling up with honey and the it, everything was going great. I would sit there and watch them coming in and out of the, the entry of the hive. Like, you know, it's mesmerizing. It's, it's a really wonderful experience. And then one day in August, they all died. And it, they just died in a pile outside of the hive. And I was, I was really devastated because I'd grown really attached to them. And I had tried so hard to take good care of them. And I couldn't understand. And I had done a lot of research about beekeeping. And it was not characteristic of colony collapse disorder, which is when bees fly off and never return home. And people don't really fully understand why that happens, but it's, it ha- it's happening a lot. But that wasn't what happened to my bees. They all came home and they died. They couldn't have had a virus or a parasite because they wouldn't have all died in one day. It would have worked through the hive. Um, and so I came to the conclusion that it had to have been chemical. You know, the, the lovely landscaping in all the neighborhood in the yards in my, you know, immaculate suburban neighborhood, um, somebody was probably using something that was poison. And I'm sure they weren't doing it on purpose. It's not like trying to cast blame. But, you know, in the United States, there are a lot of chemicals, especially neonicotinoids, that are really bad for bees and they're illegal. And like in Europe, there are, all those chemicals are illegal, but we allow them to be used in, in agricultural and, and landscaping products. So I restocked my hive. I tried again in the next August. The exact same thing happened. No way. Yeah. So it had to be a seasonal application of some chemical on somebody's yard. So you're walking down the street, tatting with every one of your neighbors. Okay, what are you using on your yard right now? (laughs) Is it you? Is it you? Yeah, exactly. And so um, I was really, I was sad. I was, you know, frustrated. But it also really made me think about bigger questions. Like, if these chemicals are killing off my entire hive in a single day, what's it doing to my native pollinators? And what's the bigger implication of that? And that's just a, a, like a microcosm of of the loss we're experiencing, our, our pollinators. This is just my neighborhood. What about other neighborhoods? What about agri- big agricultural chemicals? What about you know all these things that, that are threatening them? And I was seeing it firsthand, like literally in a pile in my yard. So that's where the idea for the story came from. What if they all died? What would the world look like? How would we live? What would change? What would look different in the world? And so that's where that came from. 
Okay, that's a little horrifying. Yeah, yeah. That's why they appeal so much to me because I think sometimes all of these warnings that are happening and people out there talking about it aren't really getting very far. But I think fiction sometimes has the potential to reach people in a different way. Yeah, I agree. I know you probably know the author of Jeff Vandermeer. He, he was interviewed in, I'm pretty sure it was in the Atlantic a couple years ago. And he said, this is a, not a perfect quote, but something to the effect of novels are laboratories for the future. And what he meant was it, that we as writers are like creating a mini world and exploring an idea and exploring a what if scenario. It's like we're creating a laboratory version of a future world. And it doesn't have to be a world we want. It can be a warning of a world we don't want. Look, well, how can we avoid this? Or it could be, you know, some people write, you know, utopian stories where we have found the answers and it's something, an aspirational novel. And I love that idea that everything I write is a little laboratory for what if. And, and so in this case, it's a what if that I hope doesn't happen. And, you know, like you said, Fiction can reach people in ways that other forms of communication can't. And maybe it'll inspire people to, to plant a pollinator garden in their yard or to look at the labels and the chemicals that they're using in their yard. I sure hope so. Me too. What kind of research did you have to do? Well, I had the beekeeping experience for myself in terms of the sounds, the smells, the equipment that's required, how to care for bees. Those are things I knew, but I'm not an, a beekeeping expert. so. Um, I reached out to a beekeeping professor at Tufts University, which is close to where I live. In fact, my daughter is a student at Tufts, and she was wonderful. And so she and I met on Zoom, and I would pose all these questions to her and talk to her about my plot. And it's like, is this feasible? Could this happen? Or how can I make this make sense? And there's an element in the story, which I, I don't want to give away, but there was one element of um, the plot that was actually her idea. She was like, what if this? And I was like, oh, what if this? This is great. And it really opened up an idea for me. And, you know, she basically helped me take the fictional elements of the story and make them plausible. I love that. And I bet she was very excited that she contributed to your story. I hope so. She's in the acknowledgments of the book. And um, we're hoping to plan an event together uh, at Tufts University to do, to do an author talk. I did, a, um, as part of a lecture series, Tufts hosts every year, I did a talk about uh, waiting for the night song, my first book, and was uh, did it with a forestry professor because there was forestry elements in Waiting for the Night Song. And for the, this book, for the last beekeeper in the fall, I'll be speaking at Tufts, hopefully with this beekeeping professor doing the interview, which I think will be really exciting. One of my son's friends is starting there in the fall, so I'll have to tell him to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, it's going to be in September or October. We don't have a date, but it's going to be part of our um, environmental lecture series. Oh, that's very cool. I wish I lived closer. Yeah, and what's, uh, it might be online as well. And last time I did it, it was online because it was in the pandemic. But I think that they, they stream all of these events. So I think it is going to be online. And Tufts was wonderful last year. They didn't charge people to show up. And they did have links, I think, to buy the book. But they also bought a whole bunch of my books. And then they just gave them to the first, I don't know, however many people that registered for the event and gave them out. So it was really fun because a lot of students who might not have the cash available available to buy the books, got to get them for free from Tufts, which was fun. Oh, that is so cool. I love that. And also students that might just not think about bringing money to the event or not sure whether they would read the book once they have it. They're like, oh, this looks really good. Yeah. And it's free. So I'm going to read it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a win. I, I, I was very excited about that. Well, how did you find it writing your sophomore novel? Was it really different than writing your first one? It was very painful, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I think the pandemic had a lot to do with it. I wrote this book during the pandemic. In fact, 
a draft, I think it was the first draft of the book was due a week before waiting for the next song launched. So I was in build up mode to launch my debut novel and having to, to you know, finish off this first draft of the, the second book. And I found it very difficult to write during the pandemic. You know, I have four kids at various ages and stages. I only have one that's left at home with me right now. I have one in college, two in grad school, and I have one in high school. And the older kids came home during the pandemic because they were working remotely. And there was a lot going on. And it was a scary time. And I really froze up. Um, I had a very difficult time. And it was really like emotionally stressful for me. And then when I turned in that first draft, um, I had to, I had to rewrite it because I didn't get the world building right. After I started working on the second draft, when my editor, you know, kind of told me that um, I needed to kind of, you know, focus in on the things that were important, it, I think I needed that direction and kind of a, a sharp wake up. And then I was able to get into the book, and I really fell deeply into it. Um, I really, really enjoyed revising this book. There were so many chapters that I just went over and over and over, just polishing bits. And I would find little little connections in the book that I hadn't even realized I'd written in. And it, there was a magic in that. And it happened in such a compressed time frame. I spent 13 years writing Waiting for the Night Song and two years working on The Last Beekeeper. And it was harder and easier, if that makes any sense. Then, you know, and I'm now working on a third book. And and that's a different experience than the first two books. So I don't know if I'm ever going to figure this out. <laughs> I think most authors seem to say that. I don't know many that say, oh, sure, by the time I'm on book four or five, it's super easy. <laughs> I, I would love <laughs> it if that happens. But. <laughs> but I think each story is so different and each aspect of each story is different. But also the environment around you, as you were talking about writing in the middle of a pandemic, hopefully you will not have to be doing that again. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I've already written a first draft of the new book and I'm already in love with the new story. And I'm heading out, you know, do a lot of touring for The Last Beekeeper this spring. But so this summer, I'm so looking forward to just melting into the world of this new book the way I did with Beekeeper last year. So that's my favorite part of just really deep revising and really getting to know those characters and what they want and what they need and, you know, kind of really inhabiting the world. That's a nice way to do it, though, keeping them separate, getting that turned in, focusing on The Last Beekeeper for the next few months, and then returning to your new book when you're done with all of the touring for The Last Beekeeper, or at least the initial part of the touring. Yeah. And I think having a little bit of distance from the draft is helpful. And I'll be reading it with, you know, somewhat fresh eyes when I look, when I go back to it. So yeah, I'm excited about it. I bet. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about that one or do you want to save that for next time when we chat? Well, I'll tell you just kind of like a little teaser because it's still a work in progress, but um, it has a working title. I don't know if this will be the title, but right now I'm calling it The Forest Becomes Her. And it's a contemporary book set outside of Boston um, in Concord, Massachusetts. And it's about a piece of land that's been deforested to build a new subdivision and about three women who live either in or on the edge of this subdivision that have different connections to the land and are in some ways haunted by the forest that's disappeared. So it's kind of a reverse haunting. It's not people haunting a place. It's the forest haunting these women. And whether it's a real haunting or if it's an imagined haunting, you know, I'll let you figure that out when you read the book. Oh, I'm so intrigued. That sounds really interesting. I always love that you focus on the environment and the land and the things that occupy the land. Yeah, those are the things that occupy my mind. That's why I, you know, I, I, I kind of think of it as all of my book ideas are manifestations of my biggest climate anxieties. You know, the things that keep me up at night, the things I worry about, 
are the things I end up writing about. And it isn't like I set that out with an intention of like, what climate thing can I write about next? It's just those are the things that, that I, I you know, occupy my mind. So that's where all the story ideas come from. And luckily, I've got lots of climate anxiety. So I've got <laughs> lots of story ideas. <laughs> well, and uh, lucky for us, not lucky for yeah. you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm a huge fan of found family stories. And I feel like there's an element of that in this book. I just love it when people come together that are not blood related and form a kind of group and a community. And I feel like you did a wonderful job with that in this book. Thank you. I'm, I'm really proud of that part of the story. So Sasha has these, these new roommates that they're all squatting in this abandoned farmhouse. And you know they're really different and they're all have been in different ways cut off from their own families, their past, their, you know, their histories because of this, you know, this crisis going on in the country and unemployment and food insecurity. And they all end up together. And like you said, they form this family. And I just really fell hard for these characters. I think of anything I've ever written, if I could spend time with any characters, I would just want to hang out at the farmhouse with these four young people just trying to find their way. And I loved coming up with the innovations for how they navigate, you know, how they tried to get electricity or how they, you know, ways they get food when things are difficult and coming up with those like life hacks that my characters come up with on this farm. It felt like kind of spending time with friends and how, what would I have done in that situation? And I, I just really, I just can't wait for other people to start to read these characters because I want to share them because I really love these this foursome of friends. I think they're a really great little family. I agree. I loved them too. And I loved everything you're describing, how they manage to occupy their time or bring in some income or at least bring in some items that they can eat or use in the house. And all of that was just so creative. And I think that's one of the things that really resonated with me too. I think I, I ever since I was a kid, I've always had these, you know, like little house on the prairie fantasies of like, you know, living out on the prairie or, you know, living in the rough and imagining all these things, you know, that I would do. And I got to kind of play out some of those fantasies in this book about, you know, what, what would I do? What would I have done if I lived this way? If I needed to source my water, if I needed to forage for food, would I know how to find it? So I spent a lot of time reading up on things like that. Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing The Last Beekeeper? I guess there's a, one character in this story that is kind of plays two roles. She is one character in one part of the book and another character in a different part of the book. And I didn't see her as being both of those characters. And so when all of a sudden she revealed herself to me and I was like, oh, it's you. That I just, it's like, I felt like she surprised me. And I hope you know who I'm talking about, but don't give it away. <laughs> I do, but I'm not going to say a word. I didn't know that's who she was. And when I discovered it, I, I felt like I had just uncovered this big mystery. And of course it, you know, it's whatever I wanted to write, but I felt like it was preordained and that I hadn't yet discovered it. And that was maybe my favorite moment in writing this book. And it, I, I think the way it ended was always the way the book was going to end. The whole time I was writing toward that ending and I always knew that what was going to happen, but there were moments in between that surprised me and moments in getting there that I didn't see coming with some of the characters and different connections between them or their re reactions to each other. I think of the four friends in this little found family, they have very distinct personality traits and characteristics, and they don't always get along with each other. And in, sometimes those characters surprise me in the way they responded to things. It's like they took on a life of their own uh, a little bit. And that's, that's always fun when your characters do that. You referenced the ending. 
And one of the things that I have such trouble with is if I start a book and I'm just loving it, like I'm like, oh, this book is so, so good. I start to get stressed about halfway through about the ending because I'm like, it's going to ruin it if I don't like the ending, you know, and you read all this, this book and you're thinking this is the greatest book ever. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh, so I was thrilled to pieces when I got to the end of your book and it was so well done. And I think that the ending is perfect is all I'll say. Well, thank you. You know, the only thing I will say about it is the end, the ending leaves room for the story to go on in the reader's mind, I think. That's what I was going to try to say, but I was trying to figure out how to say it without spoiling anything. I agree with you. I think it has an ending that feels like the right place to end. But I think that the, or at least I hope that readers will imagine what happens next. And maybe they don't all imagine the same thing. I know what I imagine, but I, I really like leaving some things open and not in a, like trying to be, you know, tricky or, you know, trick you kind of end. I, I think it has a satisfying end. But it does leave a lot of room for their lives to extend beyond the end of the pages. I agree with that. And I think that can be a fine line because you want to get to the end and have a definitive ending and feel like, okay, I'm happy with how this ended. But I think it's really great when you can kind of think about their lives past the ending of the book. So you definitely threaded that needle very well because I would not be, I'm not happy when I get to the end of a book and I'm like, wait a minute, (laughs) I don't know exactly what happened here. But you know what happened, but you can also, as you said, see what's happening in the future or, or imagine what's happening in the future. Yeah. And I also thought it was important, like hope drove this story for me. The idea of having hope when there's no rational reason to have hope. And I, and I think, you know, I tried to do this with Night, Waiting for the Night Song as well, but I want my characters to have hope and have a reason to believe in it. But I don't want the book to have a Pollyanna tone, like to think everything's going to be fine because this world's really messed up and we've really messed up, you know, this planet we live on. So I didn't want to end it by saying everything's going to be fine, but I wanted to leave big room for hope, for the characters to have hope, for the readers to have hope for me. So I felt like I wasn't going to be trite by fixing everything, but I also wasn't going to stomp out hope. That's so funny that you mentioned hope, because that was one of the things I was thinking about earlier when I was reviewing your book was that there is some hope at the end. And I think that is another fine line because you don't want to end with this just totally grim ending. But I think your point is valid. Like there's hope, but people have to do things for there to be hope. And I think that is really nice because that should hopefully galvanize, motivate people. Yeah, I hope so. Because I I really do believe that as like a personal philosophy. Like I think things are bad and I'll never, you know, I I read a lot of, you you know, climate news and listen to a lot of podcasts and it's, there's so much bad, you know, bad stuff out there that it's hard to have hope. But I, you know, and I think this was a theme in the book that we're losing a lot and there's a lot to grieve for. And it's so easy to get caught up in grieving about what we've already lost or what we're about to lose and to just be mad that we don't take time to look at what's still here and to just love what's here. And, you know, I like this analogy of like a bird feeder. If you have a bird feeder in your backyard, and you have 20 hummingbirds that come every day, and you love these hummingbirds, and something changes in your environment, and now you only have two hummingbirds. You could be really sad for those 18 that are gone, and be mad, be angry, grieve, but you still have two amazing hummingbirds left. What can you do to save them? What can you do to protect them and cherish them and be glad they're still there instead of only focusing on the loss? And I don't mean that in any way to minimize what we're losing, but I think if we only focus energy on what is lost, we aren't going to see what's still here. Well, and I think it's so overwhelmingly sad and depressing 
to think of everything we're losing. And so then sometimes people feel very hopeless and you feel like it doesn't matter what I do. So, you know, you don't want that to be the overriding feeling that people are having because there are things we can do that could change some things and turn them around. And so if everybody's just sitting around depressed and thinking, well, it doesn't matter what I do, then things are just going to get worse. Right. Something that you talk, asked about climate fiction earlier, one of the things I think that you know, climate fiction can do is it can remind you to fall in love with nature. It can remind you to look down and see the small things. It can remind you to look up and see the big things and to not just be mad and caught up in the news. It, 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 if, we, if we can remember to fall in love all over again with nature, it's going to make us want to protect it. And I think fiction can really do that. I think that's exactly right. And it can also introduce things to you that you weren't aware of. You know, this is why it's important to have wolves. This is why it's important to have bees. This is what happens when some element of the forest disappears. I think sometimes people don't even understand all of that. It's not necessarily taught in school. It's not something that we're focusing on. So I think fiction also brings that in. Like, you know, here are the reasons why it's really important that we don't lose bees. Yeah. And you, you referenced wolves, and I'm wondering if you're thinking of Once There Were Wolves. By, yes. Um, so I thought that's right, by Charlotte McConaughey, which is one of my favorite books. And something that I, you know, I learned from her book was I didn't know that um, the loss of wolves in a habitat can change the course of a river. That blew my mind. And it, it seems so illogical, but she traces it to, you know, the uh, deer are no longer predators. So the deer population takes over and they eat all the young undergrowth in a forest. So trees don't ever take root because saplings are you know, eaten. And then when old trees die, there's no big trees to hold the roots, the banks of the rivers. And so they'll collapse and it changes all these ripple effects of losing one species that it could change the course of a river, which I found amazing. I thought that was such a wonderful way to make me appreciate because it's easy to see a wolf and be like, oh, they're scary, but they're necessary. Absolutely. And she bases, you know, she got the idea for her story from Nate Blakesley in American Wolf, that book. And he talks about how not only does it change the course of the river, but that birds that hadn't been seen in Yellowstone for 50 years returned, flowers that hadn't been seen in people's lifetimes grew again. It's just amazing what happens when one aspect of an ecosystem disappears. Yeah, exactly. Thing, yeah, things move in and replace them, or it leaves a giant hole in the ecosystem and things get out of balance in ways we, we can't anticipate. Exactly. And so I think learning those type of things really gives you an appreciation, because for me, reading both of those books, I was completely fascinated. I didn't know much about wolves, and I was like, wow, I had no idea why it's so important that they need to be there. Yeah, no, I think good fiction does that. You know, it makes you curious. Well, when I posted about your book on Instagram, first, I had the greatest response that I can recall in recent times on any book I've posted. Everybody's saying, oh my gosh, I've read it and loved it, or that just sounds amazing. That was the first round of the comments. And then the second was that cover. Every single person was like, that cover, do you just love it? I love it. It's so lush. And just the layers, like the the dimensions in the cover image, for those people who haven't seen it, it's a ambers and golds and orange of a honeycomb with flowers overlaid and um, this beautiful like teal font of that says the last beekeeper and the colors just pop and it's lush and it has, it's like a little bit ominous and it's beautiful and my the cover designer named Katie Klimowitz I just I, I'm so grateful because I feel like she saw my book from the inside of my head like this you know she saw the book 
from inside of my mind, the way I envision it. And I was just like speechless when I saw it. Well, it's stunning. And as I said, almost every single person commented on that. Yeah, I feel so grateful that she interpreted my book this way. And I don't know if you noticed it, but in the, like in the lower uh, right-hind corner, there's a little tiny back on hind quarters of one single bee on the cover. And I love that there's one bee and it looks like it's, it's half on the page and half off. Like, is it there or is it not there? Which is kind of a, a theme in the book as well, which I just, there's so much about this cover that just makes me happy every time I look at it. And the wing is covering a little bit of the R. Yes, yes. I love that. It's like in the foreground. Yeah. Because it makes it almost look three-dimensional, you know, because your cover already is so has so much depth, as you were mentioning. And so really to cover it up like that truly makes it look like it's coming out at you. Yeah. And the other thing that I love about this cover is I love the font that the, uh, t- the title of the book is in. And um, Katie, the cover designer, she hand painted that font. It's, it's, I'm the, it's the first, like, I'm the first person to ever have that font because she created it. I'm so honored and just blown away, but it's also so perfect for the book. It's beautiful. Does it have a name? You know what? I don't know. I'm going to flip inside the book and see. I'm going to see if it happens to say, because, you know, sometimes they say that. But I'm going to find out. I'm going to, I've become friends with Katie. I mean, just like I have never met her in person, but I, I am so just in awe of her talent. I'm, I, I hope I don't drive her crazy, but I'm constantly <laughs> tagging her in things. I'm like, my cover designer is brilliant. But I tag her in things all the time because I'm just in awe of her gifts. And I'm going to message her after we get off the this uh, recording and ask her if there's a name for this font. Okay, good. I don't see it in the galley. And now I'm going to go follow her once I find where you've tagged her somewhere on Instagram so I can follow her because I love following cover designers. It's so interesting to see the trends and what they're doing and what's new and all of it. Yeah. you know, And I have this secret, I'm telling you, so I guess it's not really secret, but I want that to be my font. You know how some authors have a font that's in all their books, you know, that it like, you know, Jojo Moyes or there's people who, when you see their cover, you know it's their book because of the font. My secret, not so secret dream is this, this, is, this will be my font. See, now we have a name for it. If she hasn't named it, you can just call it the Julie Carrick Dalton font. Uh, I think we should call it the Katie Klimowitz font. <laughs> <laughs> but it can be attached to all of your books. Uh, that is the dream. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Uh, so many, there's so many books, but one that just, and it wasn't even the most recent book I read. I read it uh, in November, maybe, but. Have you read Take My Hand by Dolan Perkins Valdez? Yes, and I love that book. I I do too. That book just really, it just got in my head. And I think about it a lot. It's really beautifully written. The characters are very, you know, three-dimensional. And, and the story, which is, is based on you know, history, it's not like, a, it's not a history of a certain person, but based on historical events. And I heard her read when I was at Breadloaf this summer. And She's a, a really beautiful reader, and I I just hear the book in her voice when I read it, and maybe that's what made it so memorable. But that was one of my favorites. Another book that I, I read it was also it, the it, I read it months ago, but the um, paperback just came out it was Atomic Anna by Rachel Berenbaum. Have you read that one? I haven't. I had the galley, but I never got to it. Oh, I highly recommend it. It's it's a really complex structure of three generations of women. It involves time travel nuclear disaster. It's set in part in Ukraine, Russia, United States. It's a mother, daughter, grandmother. And, and it's, it's a lot of science. The time travel in it, it there's some like science behind it and comic book heroes. And um, 
it is a wild ride. It's fascinating. And she did a lot of science research in that book. So I really appreciated that. And then one, The Last Dreamwalker by Rita Woods. I love this book. It is about this uh, family of women that uh, one woman in each generation inherits this gift of being able to walk in other people's dreams. And there's a lot of history and of the region and family history and personal relationships. Very creative story. I love that one. And I just picked up a new book, so I haven't gotten very far into it, but I'm absolutely loving it already. It's called Terra Nova by Henriette Lazaridis. Do you know about this book? I don't think I know about that one. So it just came out. Gosh, time is like so malleable in my mind right now. Like maybe a month and a half ago. I could be way off on that. It could have maybe, it might even have been like in December, but yeah, it's set in 1910, I believe. And it's about um, explorers going to the pole. And, you know, in the Arctic, it's Arctic or Antarctic. No, I'm embarrassed. I don't remember that. I think it's the Antarctic. And it has, you know, women's suffrage in the background and multiple points of view. And it's like an adventure story and it's out in nature. And, you know, I love stories that are in nature and the elements and the cold is just like, like you feel cold reading this book. So I'm just getting started, but I'm already loving it. So I um, just check that out. Terra Nova by Henrietta Lazaridis. I'm going to definitely have to check that out. When you talk about being able to feel the cold, that always makes me think of Jane Harper, where she writes about the heat in Australia. People always say, I feel like I need a drink of water while they're reading like The Dry or The Lost Man, because she so vividly brings the the heat and the setting and how hot and dry it is. So it sounds like this is the opposite of that, but how cold it is. Yes. Henriette Lazaridis brings the cold. (laughs) So you have to wear a parka while you're reading. And a warm cup of tea, sit by the fire. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, I really enjoy it. And then one other one I have to say I love, love, love was Eleutheria by um, Allegra Hyde. Um, It's a um, near future dystopian, utopian climate story set on um, an island that doesn't exist in the Caribbean about this environmental utopian um, organization that's trying to like live in this utopian society. Really complicated, really good, complicated characters. And she has a new book coming out, I think in April or May, called The Last Catastrophe. And I am dying to read that one. Tell me the title of the first one. Eleutheria. I think I'm saying that right. So it's E-L-E-U-T-H-E-R-I-A. Okay. Allegra Hyde. Okay, I'm going to look that up. I feel like maybe I've seen it. I'm so much better when I pull up a cover. And then I'm like, oh, yes, I have seen that book. But I'll have to look for her new one, too. And have you seen Camp Zero by Michelle Min Sterling? No. Tell me about that. So it is coming on April, and it is about a near-future world where water has taken over parts of the country, and a lot of the different areas have collapsed. She does the same thing you do. Like, she doesn't spend forever. You know, it's not a ton of world building, just enough to kind of set you in this world. And there's this camp that's being trying to be built up in Canada. And so it's just what happens after there's some kind of climate disaster and and what the world looks like. I thought it was really good. There's three timelines. I think two are concurrent and one's a little bit different than that. And it's just how they all come together. I I thought it was great. No, that sounds right up my alley. It's called Camp Zero. Camp Zero. And it's Michelle Min Sterling. Okay. I will definitely look for that. Yes, because with your books coming out similar in time and just the, you know, overlapping ideas of the climate, you know, I think they would be good together. Yeah, maybe we'll cross cross paths somewhere on the book tour. Exactly. Well, Julie, I always love chatting with you. And this was so fun. Thank you for joining me again on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Well, thank you for having me. This has been so fun. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, 
and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.